Early in his campaign for governor of Colorado, Jared Polis asked voters a series of kind of weird questions. Do you like chocolate? Do you like coffee? What about corn? Or seafood? Yeah. Or apples? Or water? Yeah. If you're like me, the answer is yes. But if we don't act on climate change, all of this will soon be unaffordable or non-existent. When you combine a pitch like that with his years of activism against fracking, this has become a big part of Polis' image as the governor of Colorado. But that image is going to be put to the test in the next couple of months. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Andrew Kenny, here with my colleague Ben Brooklyn. Hey, Andy. And we're joined today by a member of CPR's climate team, reporter Sam Brash. Hello, hello. We're recording this episode on Thursday morning. We've brought in our colleague Sam because lawmakers have some ambitious ideas on climate this legislative session, and it's already resulting in some interesting tension between Governor Polis and the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, Democratic lawmakers really want to hold Polis to account on his promises on climate change. And we might even see some legislation that could change how you heat your home and how you cook your food. Wow. And it'll protect my corn, I assume. It could. (laughs) You two have been watching Colorado politics longer than I have. And before we actually get into this current conflict, current legislative session, I was hoping that you could explain more about Jared Polis's climate backstory, which is actually kind of interesting. And, you know, he's at the center of all this. If you want to go back, a good starting point might be 2013, 2014. That's when Jared Polis was a congressman for Colorado's second district, which includes Boulder. And the story goes that Polis found a drill rig outside one of his vacation homes in Weld County. We don't even know what is going on. We don't know what chemicals are like there in these trucks and drums at the foot of our driveway. This is a video that Polis made where he discovers the drill rig. Some companies, Sundance Energy, I think they're an Australian company that's doing Sam, if you remember at the time, I know a lot of us were saying, note to energy industry, do not put a drilling rig next to powerful member of Congress's home. (laughs) Yeah, could have done more research. (laughs) Why? What, What do you do? Well, what happened was Polis started working behind the scenes and in front of the scenes to champion and actually finance, which is probably the more important part, two Mm. anti-fracking ballot initiatives. Those proposals could have curtailed a lot of energy development along the front range. Well, tell us what became of those. Yeah, I mean, the result was that uh, he pulled those initiatives in a deal with Governor Hickenlooper. Wait, hang on. So Polis didn't actually follow through with those ballot initiatives. Right. He backed off in a deal with Governor Hickenlooper. Yeah, so what they did is they set up a task force that would look at recommendations and put it forward to the next legislature. So there there was a pretty big rift among Democrats that year. It was heading into a very big election where Hickenlooper was up for re-election. Colorado had a competitive U.S. Senate race. Mm. So it was going to be a huge, costly, brutal political fight that they did avoid. And it set up this pretty, you know, tricky reputation for Polis on the environment. On the one hand, he was seen as a champion of environmental issues, especially uh, on these sort of like NIMBY politics of oil and gas development where drilling can and can't happen. But by pulling back, a lot of the activists who really cared about that became very skeptical of Governor Polis. And a lot of the environmental community is still very skeptical of him today. That conflict from 2014 kind of seems like it's resurfacing a bit now from what I've been hearing from you, Sam. But before we get to that, what is he? what has he actually done as governor? Uh, has he lived up to any of that, that big message from the campaign commercial we heard earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to take these issues separately, right? So on the oil and gas thing, 
Absolutely. He passed this bill in 2019 called SB 181, Hmm. uh, which gave a lot more control to cities and counties over exactly where and how oil and gas development happens. Hmm. And when he signed that bill, he famously said, this will end the fracking wars in Colorado, which I think everyone kind of snickered at, like obviously. (laughs) Ambitious. But at least in this legislative session, I think it is really important to note that oil and gas development is not the number one environmental issue at all. If if you want to understand that, you Which is a change from the past. (laughs) It's a huge change from the past, Hmm. right? People are finally really talking about climate change, about reducing emissions from all kinds of economic sectors other than oil and gas. And that really, uh, if you want to understand that story, you got to go to another bill, which he signed in 2019, called Colorado's Climate Action Plan. And that laid out Hmm. goals for greenhouse gas reductions in the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to the law, and this is law, Colorado has to reduce its emissions 26% by 2025, 50% by 2030, 90% by 2050. All of that's compared to uh, what emissions were in 2005. That's where the action is really going to be is how do you make that happen? Sam, how on track is Colorado to accomplish this? And, And I guess just how difficult will it be? It's going to be really difficult. So after signing that bill, uh, he did release this roadmap for how Colorado was going to get there. And it included a lot of modeling from these environmental consultants. And what they found is if you take Colorado's current emissions trajectory, and if you factor in some of the environmental regulations that have already been passed as of 2019, Mm -hmm. we're about halfway to that 2030 goal. Uh, But getting the rest of the way there is going to require a lot of other policies that are sort of hinted at in that same climate. Roadmap. What does that mean? Where else can you clamp down on on carbon emissions? I mean, we know this, right? Like the state has a big inventory of where it thinks all the greenhouse gas emissions in mm. the state are coming from. Traditionally, the biggest piece of Colorado's emissions pie, if you want to think about it as a pie, was the electricity sector, you know, power plants, coal-fired mm-hmm. power plants. As of last year, that changed. Now the biggest piece of that pie is transportation. And so you can pretty quickly realize it's a lot harder to tackle transportation than the electricity sector. I mean, these are big power plants. You just have like one huge smokestack that you have to worry about, as opposed to millions and millions of car tailpipes. Mm. So transportation is a really big one. And then the other really big one is buildings, which again, are are not one big entity. There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of property owners in the state who might have to change the way they heat their buildings or pipe gas to stoves for cooking, stuff like that. So it seems like this ladder push to finally reach that goal is where it's going to be the most challenging, really. I I want to call it a final push. I mean, this is the whole burrito. Colorado has a really long way to go. It's it's nowhere close to reducing emissions in this way. Where do they go from here? The state's gotten part of the way there with big cuts in the energy sector, Excel, utilities committed to some big carbon reductions. What comes next? What are we talking about? Well, to get the rest of the way there, Colorado is going to have to tackle tons of other economic sectors like buildings, like transportation. And that's what we're expecting to come up this legislative session. What actually are you hearing? We haven't seen a real big climate bill this year, but we know that one might be coming. What are you hearing? What are they going to try to do, especially from the progressive wing of the party? The progressive wing in the party is very interested in holding Governor Polis to his promises on climate change and actually giving the state some teeth to reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. So uh, Democratic Senator Faith Winter is the person leading the charge on this. And she's coming out with a plan that, you know, is kind of the Colorado's Climate Action Plan Part 2. Mm-hmm. And what she says it would do, and we haven't seen details on this, is broadly give the state's Air Quality Control Commission, which 
generally worries about air pollution, more power to tackle greenhouse gas emissions, more funding, more staff, and possibly also take some of the goals that Governor Polis laid out in his climate roadmap for each economic sector and maybe toss that into actual law, codify it in legislation. Do you think people will notice the changes more if some of this stuff passed? Uh, Yeah, I think that there's a bevy of legislation on its way that would affect how people live their daily lives. I've heard that there's uh, bills coming to do more around benchmarking big commercial buildings and at the same time pushing utilities to offer incentives to help people electrify everything. The idea here is that as Colorado transitions to more and more renewable energy, you need electric cars, electric stoves, Mm -hmm. electric furnaces to take advantage of all that new renewable carbon-free power. The issue is that right now... Places like Excel Energy don't really teach customers a lot about these new electric technologies, don't offer as many incentives as some Democratic lawmakers would like to see. So I'm expecting legislation that would push them to do more of that. For an individual person, that means that your stove in the future could be an electric stove. Your your furnace might not be gas-fired. It could be a heat pump, which is more like a refrigerator working in reverse. And importantly... You know, your gas bill might go way down, but your electric bill could go way up. So are they going to come to my 1960s house and tear out my gas stove so I can't cook with my iron skillet anymore? (laughs) No, they're not going to do that. I think there's lots of oil and gas officials who would, like, frame it that way. I think that's a real possibility. Um, And I've even seen a super PAC named Protect My Gas um, advocating here in Colorado. But no, I think what they would actually do is probably require some benchmarking for big commercial buildings so people and the government have a better idea of how those buildings are contributing to climate change. And then maybe do more to make it so big utilities like Excel educate people and offer incentives for electrification. So installing electric stoves, installing electric heat pumps, stuff like that. And I bet in the long run they could talk about regulations for new builds, new construction as well. Yeah, and and that's a really interesting point. So uh, in California, you have places like Berkeley, California, which just banned gas hookups in new homes. Mm -hmm. Um, In Colorado here, cities have taken a much more careful approach uh, with building codes that all but require electrification in new buildings and, and make it really impractical to install new gas hookups probably. But they haven't gone all the way there and said, hey, you just can't put a new gas hookup in new buildings. Well, let me, let me zoom us out now. How does that compare to what other states are doing? Are, are other states trying to break off piece by piece and set these kind of regulations? Uh, other states have taken these economy-wide approaches. And probably the most well-known one is a cap-and-trade system where you permit companies to release a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions and let them trade for the right to do that, trade mm-hmm. these permits in a statewide market, and then reduce the overall number of those permits over time to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's called an economy-wide approach. And that's something we know Polis doesn't support because he doesn't think Colorado's economy is big enough where that makes sense. So if the governor's not on board with these wider economic policies, mm-hmm. do you think he'll be okay with this more limited approach? I know we haven't seen a bill yet this session, but... Yeah. 
I don't know if he's seen the bill yet this session. Lawmakers are really going at this one on their own. So yeah. I think we got to wait and see if he comes out hard against this. I think Polis understands that a lot of his appeal to voters was being the guy that we heard from at the top who really cares about climate change, who's really invested in this goal for 100% renewable energy by 2040. So he has to be really careful in how he might fight climate legislation. So I think we'll see. We talked about how divided Democrats have been on how to move forward on some of this, but where do Republicans stand? You know, that's a really interesting question, and I don't think we totally get the whole picture at this point. I would note one important piece of information was a op-ed in the Denver Post from Republican Senator Ray Scott, who represents Grand Junction. He's a mm-hmm. state senator. He's somebody who has cast doubt on climate science in the past and has been called out for his views on climate change. He wrote an op-ed saying, like, climate change is real and Republicans need to be a big part of coming up with solutions. And the ones he really focused on were nuclear energy and hydropower. So he kind of leaned into that supply side, one big technological fix, which is where Colorado, like you said, has made a lot of its progress so far. But... I'm curious if this Democratic legislation moves forward and you talk about giving the state more teeth in all these different sectors. I have a feeling this is going to end up just like this podcast being pretty wonky, but very (laughs) consequential. Yeah, it's really wonky. But I think that at the end of the day, it it actually is going to affect people's homes and cars. They're they're all going to change or they're all going to have to change if Colorado wants to actually meet its climate goals. One statistic that really stands out to me on all this stuff, to meet Colorado's climate goals, these models the state had commissioned says that 60% of sales of new heating equipment, like furnaces for building, mm-hmm. need to be electric heat pumps by 2030. 60%, right? So like- huh. And what is it now? It's like nothing. I mean, people <laughs> don't trust this technology, right? This idea of an air conditioner that works in reverse to heat your homes. A lot of people are skeptical that Mm -hmm. those can work in cold climates or they've just never heard of them or their home HVAC systems aren't set up to do that. And the state's saying, like, we need to rapidly make this the norm, not like a little nerdy piece of what some wealthy dude in Boulder wants to build into his home because it's a neat new technology, but like ubiquitous. Can this happen if you don't have a lot of Republicans on board and people from a lot of different political backgrounds? I think that's where Polis would come down and say like a lot of the reason that people are going to adopt these technologies have nothing to do with ideology and a lot to do with business. Ideally, you make these technologies cheaper and they're just Mm -hmm. what makes sense. That's certainly what we've seen happen with renewable energy. I think the question is, is that going to happen on the the demand side as well with the, you know, the heat pumps and the electric cars and the electric stoves. Let's go beyond climate for a second. While we've got Sam here, wanted to touch on another issue that has statewide interest, at least. Sam's kind of become CPR's designated wolf reporter. As we know, voters approved the reintroduction of these animals in certain parts of the state. And I know there's been a handful of follow-up bills trying to figure out how exactly the state will do that to, again, bring the wolves back to certain parts of Colorado. But what's going on with that? Where are we at in terms of wolf reintroduction? Yeah, right now, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, which is the state wildlife agency, is going to start holding a number of meetings, figuring out how are we actually going to do this wolf reintroduction. At the same time, the legislature, it looks like it is willing to get involved as well. There have been Mm -hmm. a couple of bills so far. One would have said that Colorado Parks and Wildlife, which is a cash-funded agency, should have its own separate pot of money from the general fund Mm. 
to to do this wolf reintroduction effort. Okay. It looks like that got blocked at a democratically controlled commission, along with another Republican bill. And this one is some brilliant legislative trolling, if you want to think about it, oh. uh, that says if, if you want to introduce wolves, you can only do it in communities that voted for wolf reintroduction. <laughs> so, so wolves Denver. in Denver, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, let's, let's uh, release them on the 16th Street Mall. You guys love wolves so much. We'll have fun. We've definitely seen an urban-rural divide on this issue specifically. So the wolves are not going to be reintroduced in an urban area, but the front range and the urban parts of the state voted for reintroduction. Barring a couple examples, the rural parts of the state did not vote for this. And so some of the lawmakers I've talked to who represent those areas felt like it's all well and good for someone in an urban area to think this sounds like a cool idea. They don't maybe have to live with the economic consequences or depending upon ranching and tourism, you know, people are concerned about how this may impact their livelihoods. Yeah, I think it's also important to keep in mind, though, that wolves on both sides of the political spectrum are very powerful symbols, political symbols. You know, I think on the right, it's become another sign of how Democrats or urban voters are trying to trample on their way of life. Mm -hmm. I think for more left-leaning people who support wolf reintroduction, they offer this promise of restoring ecosystems. And that gets really tricky when you have a very thorny issue of how are you going to actually go about getting wolves, finding out where they should live, reintroducing them, figure out how ranchers should be compensated if they do lose things, figure out how they prove whether wolves killed their livestock at all. And so I think that's sort of the challenge that I'm up against is how do you step back a little bit and just say, like, there's all these crazy politics going on, but the actual problem ahead of the state is huge Mm. and they have a lot to figure out. And it's like the concept, should we do this or not, was almost the easy part. Right. Yeah, that's definitely the easy part. So I really wanted to share something with the two of you. A moment where I said, wait, 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 what? what? This is finally happening. I could not believe it. And it gives me a chance to play some audio that Sam actually recorded when he was a legislative reporter with me before he switched to the climate beat. And we'll just tee it up here. It's like nothing I've ever heard at the Capitol. That was a bank of five computers reading a bill at 650 Mm -hmm. words per minute. Um, That was in response to a Republican stalling tactic. They asked for bills to be read out loud at length. And so this has been in the courts since 2019. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that you cannot read bills at 650 words per minute when someone asks that a bill be read at length. They Mm -hmm. said that violates the Constitution. What, you guys couldn't understand that? I I couldn't understand it. But it did the Democrats lose, though? Because if I remember right, the reason the Republicans were trying to have bills read at length was the slow down that oil and gas legislation we were talking about earlier. Right? <laughs> that was why. Yeah, that was that, exactly why. That was which ultimately passed. So like they, they had one ace to play and they played it, which was wild and sounded just completely insane. So I wasn't surprised to see the Supreme Court decision, but well, what was interesting about the Supreme Court decision was they basically said you can't do what Democrats did here, uh-huh. but they didn't say what you should do. But this is still a tool Republicans can use this session, and they've used it several times, even as a threat to get more negotiating power. Uh Because especially at the end of the session, when the deadlines are really tight, if you ask a bill to be read at length and it can take days or sometimes a week, depending upon the length of the bill, 
that can derail all the other legislation. So Republicans and whichever party's in the minority now has this additional tool that's been preserved, if you will. I know. And I feel like we have this moment of people actually caring about parliamentary procedure because of what's happening with the filibuster at yeah. the national level. Right. Um, exactly. And, and I do wonder if we could ever see something like this in Congress, Congress, as we move ahead with that, because there's talk of it becoming a talking filibuster, right? Oh, where, gosh. Where they so, actually have to talk. Where they actually have to talk. So saying filibuster. Maybe yeah. Colorado is like leading the way here. I think so. I mean, hardball parliamentary stuff is certainly... More and more in vogue. And that's what we just heard. That is it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleagues Benta Berkland and Sam Brash. You can find me on Twitter at Benta Berkland. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. And I'm at Samuel Brash. That's B-R-A-S-C-H. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. This is Purplish from CPR News.